0: You are listening to the Millennial Nomad Coming Alive podcast series, where we explore 180 life shifts, inner transformation, and the pursuit of dreams. I am your host, Elnaz Moringa, and I invite you to roam with us as we engage in some soul talk. These interviews are some of the experimental ones, so please do excuse the minor sound quality interruptions that may occur. The conversations were too real and too precious not to include due to some tech difficulties. I hope you understand. For more information about me and my work, please visit my website at www.millennialnomad.com. Nomad is spelled with two A's, so be on the lookout for that. In this episode, I interview Nico Augsberger, an American expat in Saudi Arabia, pursuing his PhD in environmental science and engineering, with an emphasis on microbiology. His main project is exploring sustainable wastewater treatment to find alternative untapped water resources. But when I asked him about his true passions in life and his priorities, he said it was to be a good husband, a good father, and a devoted family member all around. I am so excited to share his journey and to share some of his insight about the world and about life and love. So thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. I can't wait to get into it.
1: No, absolute pleasure, Elena. Thank you for for asking me and for having me.
0: So, I knew you or we, I knew you in high school. We didn't talk all the time, but I knew you well enough and you know, you're like a very likable person and I think you, you kind of seem to connect to people easily. Um, The first thing that I wanted to ask you, because I find it so interesting, is that you ended up leaving after undergrad to move to an entirely different country, all the way in the Middle East to Saudi Arabia, where, you know, the norms and cultures and traditions are very different than what we are exposed to here. And I wanted to ask you, how was that experience for you when you first got there? And were you able to kind of use your ability to connect with people to kind of settle settle in into that environment?
1: Um, yeah, uh that's a very <laughs> nice uh and deep question, but um it's something that I think came as second nature to me. Um I immigrated to the US when I was six, seven years old. And so we always flew to different parts of the world to meet up with our family, which is from Uruguay. And my dad's side of the family is, is German and um me and my brothers, all in high school, did a foreign exchange trip as well. Um, I did a. I had to take summer school one in two separate summers to make up for a semester that I would miss during high school, and I did this my sophomore year. And I went to Germany for uh, six months, and that kind of um, experience was always encouraged in in my house, being. A very international family. My dad, for example, lived in in Uruguay, Trinidad and Tobago, Peru, um, Afghanistan, uh, the UK before settling down in Germany and, and starting a family. And then, when I was born, we moved from Germany to China to Uruguay, and then settled in the U.S. So the the being in a different culture and being in a A different environment didn't intimidate me as much. And uh, I saw it more really as like an opportunity to start the next phase of my life. So when I first arrived, um, it was more excitement more than anything I would have to say. And uh, this is a very, although it is in Saudi Arabia, it's a very international community. Only 30% of the student body was local Saudi. And so knowing that uh, basically everybody else, when they arrive, is in the same boat. Um, everybody was coming from different places and getting ready to start something in Saudi Arabia, which, as we know, is, is very different to, to a Western culture. So the, the intimidation part of it wasn't so apparent for me, and I saw it more as, a, as an exciting opportunity, to be honest.
0: So what is something that I guess surprised you? So I know that you were really open to the experience, but when it comes to just the culture or your experience there, you know, what was something that really pleasantly surprised you about, um, you know, about your time and stay, or it could be the people, it could be an experience you had, but just something that stood out to you.
1: Yeah, I would 100% say um, the people. Uh, I don't really have to explain how maybe Middle Easterns are perceived in, in the media, but the warmth of the people there was it was quite extraordinary. So um, I arrived in Saudi Arabia in, in August of 2015, and I went back to propose to Jen, my wife, in September. And within that short um, time frame, I met a local Saudi who ended up being the one to take me to the airport on short notice because all of the taxis had been booked. So I called him the day before. He let me get in his car, drove me to the airport, which is about an hour and 15 minutes away, no questions asked, and didn't ever ask, obviously, for anything in return. And then when I had to move houses, the same guy um, helped me move my entire house from an apartment to the place that I was going to move into with Jen. And another similar story is when I was coming back from um, from visiting Jen in in San Diego. I hadn't organized a taxi from the airport to um, to my university, which again it's a hundred kilometers away. It takes about a little bit over an hour to get there. And I got to talking to the guy that was sitting next to me on the plane by by chance, and we were kind of sharing life stories and this, that, and the other, and. He brought up the question of how are you going to get to KAUST, which is my university. And I told him I was, you know, I was just going to ask a taxi driver, have a sign saying, you know, who, who can drive me here or there. And he himself offered to drive me. I had just met him on that plane. Um, and he lived in the city where the airport is. And he took a taxi with me. We went to his car and he drove me. An hour and a half north, stopped, got me coffee. Super nice guy. And so that I was definitely not not expecting um, to see. I mean, in any culture whatsoever, obviously. But it really uh, took me by surprise there. And actually, both of them were from the same city, which is uh, Medina. So I always say that the nicest um, Saudis come from there because of my personal experiences.
0: How long do you plan on staying there? I mean, is this a... I know until you finish school, I know that you mentioned you were getting your master's. Uh, what are you studying? And after that, do you plan on coming back to the States or do you plan on staying there uh, for a little longer?
1: Um, so, yeah, it, it will probably come to an end when I finish my with my, with my studies. So I, I did my master's and now I'm working on my PhD and it's in environmental science and engineering and more specifically in microbiology. And just broadly speaking, we work on sustainable wastewater treatment, which is a huge untapped freshwater resource which um, is just being dumped into our oceans or lakes or rivers. And um, in the Middle East where they're heavily water-stressed, they're trying to look for alternative solutions. And so wastewater reuse is not a completely new concept. They use it in many countries like Singapore, for example. And um, we're trying to treat the water in a basically a energy um, net zero uh, way. And we actually just developed a patent to, um, to further develop this technology. And so um, after I finish my PhD, I do plan on coming back um, to the States and kind of living close to family and things like that. But... Because we are developing this patent, who knows? We might, I might, um, have some ties back in the Middle East, and absolutely love it there. So I would have nothing against going back.
0: So a lot, you know, a lot of the people that I interview, um, they're kind of those. It's a type of individual. I think everyone's story is so unique, but the one thing they share in common is that they're really pursuing, whether it's a full-time career, whether it's a side hobby, or you know. in whatever capacity they can, they're pursuing something they're really passionate about or something they really believe in. And I know that when we're growing up, there's a certain set of careers that are you know, laid, laid out before us, and that's all there is in the world. So my question for you is, how did you kind of stumble upon this very niche career? And was it a passion of yours, or was it something that you kind of fell into?
1: Um, yeah, I definitely just kind of fell into it. Um... I was very malleable and during my undergrad and uh, I switched my career paths many, many times in the first couple of years, I went in, um, pursuing another passion of mine, which is sports. So I wanted to be a, um, kind of like a physical therapist or actually I was studying exercise science. And then I was thinking, you know, why, uh, do that when you can be, you know, be a full doctor and, um, maybe related to sports, maybe not, orthopedics or, or what have you. And then um, I found dental school very daunting and um, didn't know if I was completely passionate about being a doctor. And so I was actually studying to be a dentist. And that's what uh, I pursued for three years, um, the last three years okay. of my undergrad. And in the meantime, I was doing, I, I did my undergrad at Georgia State and I was doing a research internship at Georgia Tech um, across, the, across the pond. And um, the professor that I was working with was, you know, uh, like many of the faculty in Georgia Tech, one of the top in his field, all of his students were incredibly intelligent in my view and they they seemed to be solving kind of like real world issues and i went into this it, it was basically it was a job i was getting paid and so i went into this job every day kind of in awe of of these people around me and the amount of stuff that i was taking in and learning and stuff like that and i started doing that in in may and it was kind of like a summer internship and when it finished they asked me to stay on until i finished my undergrad which was the following may and of course i agreed and in that meantime this professor was kind of headhunted to go to this university and start the petroleum research center there. And so um, after he did that, I like went in to go see how everybody was doing. If they had decided to go or to stay to Saudi Arabia, I mean, that's, you know, quite, quite the change. And he brought me into his office and asked me if, you know, if I wanted to, to go or not and that he would sponsor me if, if i wanted to go and the university is, is pretty unique in that everyone that is accepted um, has like a full ride and a stipend and they provide housing for us and so the master's program is only a year and a half to two years and with everything kind of being paid for i didn't really see any any cons if i hated it or didn't like it or had second thoughts i could always come back and keep pursuing dentistry and i i don't know if i wanted to live with the regret of um what if what if and um yeah he, he basically sold me the idea of this very young up-and-coming university with um the backing of the the saudi government to push for new and innovative technologies to kind of wean themselves off petroleum and it, it was something that kind of blew my mind i'd never really thought of, of research before uh you mentioned there being like certain career paths and i was on one of those um becoming a dentist a very standard common practice and yeah once i i got into research and um i don't know if it was my curiosity or what i i just loved it and um yeah decided to stay thereafter
0: so first of all i think that's incredible. And I think, you know, as you reason kind of through it, and you explain it to me, your your mindset was kind of, well, I don't have anything to lose. So I might as well just give it a shot and, and see what happens. But I think that actually having that mindset is so difficult for so many people, because it's such an extreme change. And I'm not just talking about, you know, moving to a whole different country, it's just making that pivot in your career, career and just kind of taking a chance on something. So I think it takes a lot of like inner adaptability a lot of inner courage to do that do you find yourself being you know a fearless person would you say that you're pretty fearless or do you feel fear and kind of push through it
1: (laughs) yeah it depends on which way you look at it was it um fearless for going and taking the opportunity of or fear of of regret and maybe passing up on an opportunity and so I definitely am someone that um, doesn't mind being completely out of their comfort zone. Um, I don't think anyone is comfortable 100% out of their comfort zone. But uh, even when I was maybe 13, when I was in middle school, right, I when we first immigrated to the U.S., um, sorry, I'm like <laughs> jumbling around. But um, so when we first moved to the U.S., we we're kind of relocated by my father's company. So we were put into like a private school in downtown Atlanta. And that was up until fifth grade. And at fifth grade, I moved to public schools because my dad changed jobs and the company wasn't paying for that. So I, I went to public school and went to Mount Bethel. And after that went to Dickerson. So I had just started, um, you know, making good bonds with friends um, and peers that lived around in my area and things like that. And all of a sudden, our, um, our neighborhood got redistricted. So in eighth grade, I had a decision to make of whether I wanted to continue going to the same school. Our neighborhood was going to, uh, the parents were going to get together and make like a carpool system to get all of the kids to school so that the, the kids wouldn't have to switch schools. So it was really up up to us um, whether we wanted to continue going to Dickerson or if we were going to go with the redistricting and go to Dodgeon. And no matter what, both of these schools were going to feed into Walton. Um, so I I don't know why. I mean, I, I was quite young, but I decided just to go for it and go go to Dodgeon for a year. And I made some of the best friends um, that I know that, that year at Dodge and continued being friends with them in, in Walton and stayed friends with some of the people that I had at Dickerson. So that being out of the comfort zone, I, I wouldn't say that I'm fearless. I would say maybe I'm less fearful of that uh, change of social situation uh, than other people, but uh, I have my fears and doubts about things just like anybody else.
0: I mean, in some ways, I feel like making the decision to move to a different middle school might be even more intimidating than classically <laughs> for a job. I know, right? <laughs> Because I also, I, I, we moved uh, counties when I was, after I was done with elementary school. So I was totally new to Dickerson. And let me tell you, I was not extroverted in sixth grade. And that mm-hmm. was terrifying
1: yeah it is it is terrifying i mean i remember when i was that age moving i had my you know the best friends in the school that i went to in downtown Atlanta it was called atlanta international school and you know i had best best friends there as well i keep in touch with uh, maybe one or two of them but i remember crying you know when i had to move to public to uh, public school because i had only one year left in elementary school and Like, you know, everybody already has their friends. And then after that, we're going to move schools again and stuff like that. So I would definitely say that the middle school changes, it was pretty daunting in itself.
0: Yeah. Well, I know that you're also, you know, on top of everything that you're doing with your PhD, which congratulations, that's really amazing. And I know you're working on uh, baby number two right now is about to come. I mean, I would say your beautiful baby is about to come into this somewhat interesting world, uh, um, but I know that, you know, you, you'll you make sure that everything's taken care of. But I wanted to kind of ask you about that because I know that, you know, you do have a daughter and I know that you and your wife make a great team, but how, how has fatherhood changed you? I mean, has it taught you something new about yourself and how do you kind of, you know, see your role in Mila, your daughter's life and what what kind of dad do you want to be?
1: Wow. Um, definitely never been asked that question before. So um, it's hard to really say how one changes. Um, I think my wife would be able to answer that, that question a lot better than I could. Um, but yeah, it, it was a busy time to have uh, a kid. But at the same time, one of the blessings in in being in Saudi Arabia, kind of isolated from the rest of the world, is that all we kind of had uh, was each other and bringing a child into the world as well. It was kind of like we had our own little team out there in Saudi Arabia and um, all of the time dedicated to one another and in, in building this family. And so, of course, it, it wasn't the easiest thing to balance everything, including a PhD, but um, it's a thing that I think you take day by day. Uh, one of the first things I realized is that parents have no idea what they're doing. (laughs) It's kind of like, a on you, you kind of learn on the job. You can read as many books as you want, which they do help a lot uh, as well. Um, but in the end it's, it's how you react to, to certain situations that, that your child kind of puts in front of your face sort of. And, um, in terms of what kind of father I, I would like to be, um, I, I would like to kind of leave the door open kind of like my parents did to me to do whatever my daughter wants wants to do and, and my son that's on the way. And, um, um, and yeah, so the... Just kind of the idea of being able to build your own person, your own life in, in the way that it, that is respectful to to others around you. I think that, that that's an important value. Um, the kind of father I, w- I, I would be, um, it, it's hard for me to really uh, grasp or to really answer now. I know that, you know, of course, you want them to be loving, you want them to be caring and things like that. And it's kind of finding out how um, how to instill this in, in a human being for them to grow and flourish. But, um, yeah, I'm still trying to figure it out. I think.
0: No, I think that's a totally acceptable answer. I didn't expect there to be a perfect, you know, summary of it because it is such a different experience and I don't have kids, so I really can't relate to it, but I'm in great admiration for those who, you know, are raising really great kids and juggling so many other things in their life. It's not easy, but they make it look easy
1: it it definitely helps to have um i don't know how single parents do it to have some support you know i have to definitely give a shout out to my wife who's an absolutely unbelievable uh, wife and mother and she's one of six kids and i don't know if that had something to do she's in the one of the older ones of six kids if that had anything to do with it but really she she was a natural from day one And it's just really about supporting her and being there for her when, when she needs me. But it's, um, it's an amazing experience and, and yeah, we couldn't be happier really.
0: I try not to go too far into the personal details of people's lives because I am a big believer in respecting privacy and boundaries, but in a more abstract way, something I ask almost every person I've interviewed is what their thoughts on love, love is and you can take that in any direction love for humanity love for the romantic other it could be love for family but at this stage of your life what does love mean to you
1: love i think um to me is is i mean it's gonna sound cliche because it kind of is in a way it's a very abstract concept and i think it's completely unconditional um whether that be about a person or or about the planet or about a cause. It's um, being able to surrender yourself to that um, with with knowing that you might not get anything back or anything in return. It's about uh, the thing you love, the person you love, watching them grow and what you can do the most you can do um, to have that happen. And um, doesn't matter the circumstances, doesn't matter what has happened in the past, or if it's upset you, um, if it or he or she has upset you, it, it's it's actually something I think you can't really control. It's 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 a feeling, but it's also um, represented in actions. But uh, to me, love is just the key word. I think is unconditional.
0: You know, from just kind of knowing about your background and like all the things that you're doing right now, I feel like you've always been pretty mature for your age and our age. I mean, same thing. But it's it's just interesting to watch because I wonder how much of that had to do with the fact that you were raised by parents that were foreigners or that you were a first generation immigrant to the country, the same way that Mm -hmm. immigrants like myself would be first generation, you know, like children of immigrants. And I wonder how much of that has affected you because you do, you do seem very mature and very wise for being young compared to most men who can't seem to figure out how to tie their own shoes at like 35. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm like actually impressed that you have yourself on top of your life.
1: I mean, I, I would be tentative to agree a hundred percent with what you're saying. Um, I think life is not really something that you figure out or uh, you just kind of roll with the punches type type thing um, definitely having immigrant parents maybe not matures me, but gives you kind of more of a global perspective on um, on things and um, you know obviously being an immigrant son a son of immigrants um, they all kind of went through their personal struggles and, and you see firsthand um, the changes that they've made in their lives for for you and the sacrifices of living away from their own family and stuff like that. And they make it seem very, um, you know, no-brainer, no, no worries, and like as if it's 100% the correct decision. And so I think that being, you know, convinced about the decisions that you're going to make you don't really have to answer to anyone or um or at least you can defend yourself against other points of view and things like that and and i think that, that that's an important uh factor is if if you're secure with your your beliefs then then there's nothing that should upset you or um yeah should throw you off um we all kind of coexist there's no uh, one way to be or one way to think or you know, one way to live life. I mean, having kids doesn't make you more mature or having a job doesn't make you more mature. Uh, I think it's about kind of enjoying your situation as much as you can.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for those listening, I was not insinuating that Americans are the immature ones. I'm just saying God, <laughs> that's not what I meant I at all. I didn't say that. No, no, I know you didn't say that. <laughs> when I'm listening, I think you want them to misinterpret. But it was more of just an observation that um that those who do, and I know you were very young when you came here, you were six or seven, but especially for those who come here, you know, when they move here at a later age, like their teenage years or maybe in their twenties, I do notice that maybe just because of life's difficulties or maybe just the, the worldliness of traveling, like something kind of shapes, I think all that shapes the way that someone thinks. So you're right. Maturity isn't just what you do, but it is really a way of thinking. So I agree with that. Yeah. You know, something I wanted to also ask you because you know I know you said it's kind of easy for you to connect with people and um, that's been something that came naturally to you. But you know nowadays we just live in such a polarized world and communication has become kind of difficult. How do you? I mean, do you have any advice on how to kind of bring people together?
1: Um, I think that um, even people that have completely opposite views on, on certain things can still um, agree on the vast majority of things. We, we get very obsessed with people that disagree on certain topics, but not other things. So, you know, people are surprised, maybe if people's political views that are now coming to light with social media and they've been friends with these people for 20, 30 years, even, you know, in, in our parents' case, and so it's not that ignorance is bliss, but there's so many other, you know, beautiful enlightening things that you can connect with other people on. And if we could just focus on, on those on an individual basis, at least, um, more than the ones that, you know, we tend to argue on, um, then I think that will bring people a lot closer. As, as a global collective, it's a little bit um, more challenging, because uh, it is these big issues that seem to polarize people the most, and um, some people, you know, are, are, are driven by different motives. So it, it's not really a very human-to-human connection when we're talking about some of these large polarizing political or geopolitical uh, issues. That I don't, I don't think I or anyone has the answer to now. But on an individual basis. Um, you know, I, I have some of my best friends share very different political views or, or views on life or the environment or things like that. Um, it doesn't make anybody uh, a bad person because they, they think differently. Um, it's just their point of view and their perspective and, and what they want to see in the future or what they want to get out of life. So um, maybe lowering the judgment a little bit and, and finding commonality with, within the human. I think that one of the ways that I I connect with people is because I have so many hobbies, like um, physical activity hobbies. I love, I'm not extremely good at any sport, but I love so many sports. I play tennis a lot, I play soccer a lot, I like to mountain bike, I like to stay active, swim, run, uh, rock climbing, anything that kind of gets me moving, I enjoy. And simple, simple uh, daily tasks like that can help you connect um, with people that have absolutely nothing to do with you. And the yeah, the ability to have you don't you don't need to have many hobbies, but to have a few hobbies um, again on an individual level more than a, a global level um, helps tremendously
0: that question. I kind of want to build off of what you just said, because the other question that I did have for you was actually to ask you, you know, aside from your career and, you know, your family responsibilities and all that, I did want to ask you if there was something that you were truly passionate about or you enjoy that was just for you. So I know that you mentioned sports and having hobbies, but is there anything else in your life that you're really drawn to? I mean, something that's um, like a passion of yours or a goal that you want to accomplish in your lifetime?
1: Hmm. A passion project that I want to accomplish in my lifetime that isn't sports or hobbies. Um,
0: it could be a hobby, but not like sports. Really, just like another ho- It could be like another hobby.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that it's just parenthood. To be honest, um, you know, I, I want my, you know, my family to think that I'm a good person and that you know I did right by them. And so, apart from, kind of work and hobbies that's what i try and focus all of my my energy on is is just being being happy at home and and taking care of each other not you know financially but more um in terms of the time and uh, attention that we that we give one another so definitely um it it would be family
0: no i think that's a great answer it's funny because no one's ever mentioned that as their as their hobby or passion they pursue no but I think that it is it's so interesting that nobody has because it's such a huge part of our lives
1: yeah i mean i have man you know i have many hobbies that i would love to get better at but uh in terms of something that i would like to really accomplish that might leave some sort of um impact on the world after you know we're all gone um i think that if you you know can create good human beings at home then that might be an effective way to do it.
0: No, I, I love that answer. It's the first time I've gotten it, and I like it. It's a good answer.
1: Okay. Well, awesome. back, so, what was your other question?
0: <laughs> yeah, my other question, going back to the to the your career. It was mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned that you mm-hmm. changed your career, and it was a pretty stark change. You went from dentistry to where you are now. And I know a lot of people when they're making big career changes. Um, some people kind of have their opinions about whether that's the right thing and, you know, they want to give their input. So did you find that your friends and your community was supportive of your decision or did you kind of have to battle that out and kind of make your own way?
1: Um, I would say maybe my earlier changes in, during my undergrad between exercise science or uh, dentistry or medical doctor um, that is a little bit more understanding. People can relate to that a bit more, and everybody changes. You know, the number, the most popular um, degree that people enter the university with is undecided, so it, it's not something that's foreign to people. And maybe the the Saudi Arabian move um, raised a few more eyebrows, but without really knowing the place, it's it's hard to judge. Um, And so that's why I I was willing to kind of commit to a short-term master's and then see if I wanted to save for the PhD or anything like that. And the community within the university, it's called King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, or KAUST, is, it's an unbelievable community. Really, it's obviously very unique. It's kind of like a shut off compound within Saudi Arabia, um, that kind of it operates within Saudi laws, but kind of has its own guidelines as well. And maybe people, you know, looked at going to Saudi Arabia, um, a little bit weird because of whatever perception that they might have. Uh, I've met even people from the middle East that are, you know, ask me, what are you doing in Saudi Arabia? And it's just that they don't know. Um, so, I gave it a chance. I personally loved it. Um, when you know my then fiance came to check it out. she loved it and my family was my parents are extremely amazing parents. They're always supportive of uh, whatever decision I want to make. They didn't make me go to the different to the same middle school. They didn't make me uh, follow dentistry. and when I wanted to move to Saudi Arabia, I'm sure as parents they had more than a couple concerns, but I, I never really felt them. And so with my parents' support, my long-term girlfriend at the time, I didn't really have anyone else to please. So um, that, that's my, my close circle. And so with that support, um, it's a lot easier to make uh, big decisions like that.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a huge difference. It kind of gives the extra backup of confidence in case someone needed to lean on it. How was the transition for your wife Jen? I know that and I know you can't really speak on her behalf, but from what you know, I just think it's interesting because you know I, it is a different environment for women. And I haven't been, unfortunately, to Saudi Arabia yet. I would love to visit, but I've been to other Middle Eastern countries. So just from an experience standpoint, what was that like for her to kind of, you know, transition to that culture as a woman?
1: Yeah, of course, um, the jumping on the boat to go to Saudi Arabia as a man is a hundred percent. It still continues to be completely different than for a woman, and so uh, I remember drawing up a PowerPoint to <laughs> present to her father at the time uh, before she she came to try and convince him that this was you know a nice place, an international place, and this, that, and the other. I literally had a PowerPoint presentation, but um,
0: that is so funny.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Uh and so no, for her, um you know, I tried to send her photos, but I went about six months before before um kind of imposing on her to to come and check it out, and like I said, I saw it as a beautiful place with amazing opportunities, so uh, she came, and at first, I think we were just really excited, so we got married um as she came, and we were starting our lives together and her day-to-day life was was that kind of like newlyweds we uh, you know went to work but i worked really really close to where we live because again it's a, like a closed compound and we made really good friends there that we ended up traveling all over the middle east with and and yeah so i think at first it was kind of like nostalgia uh, not nostalgic but just kind of uh, living on clouds type vibe like we we really there, there, we saw no evil. We, there was no stress. It, it really is the honeymoon period. And we kind of took advantage of all of the things that we had there. We were living alone, free rent. So we were trying to see as many places as possible, local to the area that normally wouldn't be uh, on your list. So we were able to travel quite a bit compared to maybe uh, a PhD student in the U.S. that has to pay for their own rent and insurance and all that kind of stuff. And, um, I would say that maybe, uh, not just hers, but our perspective kind of changed now that we, that we had a, a child, um, being in kind of like a closed compound and away from family, all of a sudden became more of a reality. And I, I, I can't really say how scared or how worried or how, um, yeah, um, worried she was about coming to saudi arabia in the first place but i would say that it, it the compound itself that we lived in didn't feel a hundred percent like saudi It's kind of like a micro bubble within saudi arabia and of course you interact with the locals and stuff like that but um it was it was kind of like a smooth transition i i would say and yeah i think we both look back at those first two three years of of being married in saudi is, is some of the best that we that we've had actually
0: yeah. I mean, I'm sure the experience is, is just incredible. I, I think I asked that question because I do think, you know, of course, when it comes to the limitations of being a woman in certain countries, that's just a reality. And it's not just exclusive to Saudi Arabia. There's a lot of other countries where I can talk about that. But I think from a very just cultural experimental level, um, you know, I've heard some that it's such a beautiful place. And I'm sure there are so many wonderful memories that you've had that the average person won't get, you know, the average person who who wants to to go to Saudi Arabia probably won't get it because they're not living as locals like you said and being able to really travel around there as much in their spare time so I think that's really great
1: yeah I mean the the it's not like the, the there there aren't any any issues with it so it is it is tough so leaving the the compound you know Jen did have to cover up um so in at least in the city that we lived in it was okay to show your hair which you know in other parts of Saudi Arabia, you have to wear the whole um the hijab and and the burqa and so with um with Jen, she just had to wear her abaya, which is basically you know like a loose fitting dress from the neck down and we do have to be wary that we when we leave the campus we need uh to bring that and we We did take a trip once where they have uh, religious police to enforce. Um, these types of things and did ask her to cover up her hair and things like this can be you know quite daunting and quite scary but um, we are living kind of in in their culture and in their customs and if you don't take these kinds of things with with malice then it's harder to digest and maybe you know um, because it's not our country and we are expats there We don't take the the issues so personally, personally as maybe a a local woman would, Um, but we have started to see more and more changes since in the short time that we've been there. There's been, you know, uh, women elected officials into government since we've been there. They they lifted the ban on driving for women since we've been there, and so just like the rest of the world, you know, the the points of view within Saudi Arabia are polarized in that there there is a, a big um, fraction of the population that do want to see it modernized and, and um, especially move forward in, in the human rights aspect and so um, there were you know certainly eye-opening and challenging things particularly uh, as a woman being in Saudi Arabia uh, the feeling of being oppressed um, but again maybe it's a little bit Less knowing that it's not your country, and you know you can kind of go home whenever you want. Um, whereas we know the women there don't really have that option.
0: Yeah. No, I was just very intrigued by it. I went to school in Miami for undergrad, and there was a lot of um, a lot of individuals from various Middle Eastern countries, but especially Saudi Arabia. And you know they were I, I can't really explain them explain them because they were just so much like us. So it's hard to be like oh yeah. we're like this we're like that just open minded, fun, liberal, like you said, like bonded over random things that we had in common so to me there's just so much more similarities between people like you said than there isn't but then you go back into the greater political landscapes and things like that to kind of see where you know people's environments are different but people yeah. themselves are quite similar
1: yeah as if you know every person in a country should be accountable for for what their government does right so you we kind of think of countries as like one entity when they're really they're made up of millions of individuals. So it, it's it's really hard to generalize a population like that, even in such an extreme case like Saudi Arabia, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the last two questions that I want to ask you to kind of you know wrap this up is two questions that I've been asking everyone as well. And the first one is, what makes you feel alive? And that's a pretty broad question, but I ask it because I really hope that When people listen to these podcasts, they kind of just start to question for themselves how much they resonate, how much they don't, and where in their life they can make changes to feel more fulfilled. So the first question is, what makes you feel more alive? And the second question is, what is a question that you want to ask yourself for the year ahead?
1: So I'm trying to kind of not go towards what makes you happy when you ask, um, what makes you what makes you feel alive? Um, Because, you know, happiness is kind of like a feeling that that kind of comes and goes, where maybe what makes me feel alive is, is kind of um, a little bit more future based. So, um, you know, what makes me happy every day is, is the small things throughout the day, things to look forward to activities, my family, obviously, every single day, but um, what makes me feel alive is kind of working towards kind of a big goal. I would say so. Right now, uh, it's my PhD, which I believe will, you know, help the world in some way, or at least contribute to helping the world in some way. Trying to solve the the water crisis that that's coming, as well as um, some other things that we we won't get into. Um, but I think, yeah, having short-term goals for an eventual long-term goal um, is, is kind of um, what makes me feel alive. So working towards something, uh, and of course that can be anything, but in, in my case it's uh, finishing this PhD addressing uh, water scarcity. And um, the second question, what would I want to ask myself in a year? um in a year i would have finished my phd i would you know like to ask myself if i did everything that i could to to make the most out of those five years in saudi arabia and i would like to ask myself if in the last year you know i again to bring it back to family but if i was the the best parent and the best uh partner to to my wife that i could have been um Cause yeah, I guess that that's what I find most important.
0: I love that. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to be open and candid. I know that you have so many things going on right now with baby number two almost here, but I really hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did. And I think people listening will be really fascinated with what you had to say. Um, so thank you for taking the time.
1: No, it was absolutely brilliant talk. Um, I loved it, and these are not questions that, you know, it's not small talk, so not questions that people generally ask you. And, and so it was a nice exercise to kind of um, look at my story in, in that kind of a way. But, no, thank you for your time. And, yeah, don't, don't feel any pressure to publish this if you don't want to. But I actually really enjoyed it. So thank you for what you're doing. It's super interesting. And, yeah, I hope the people like it.
0: As always, thank you for listening to the Millennial Nomad Coming Alive podcast series. Be sure to tune into the new episodes coming up for more real talks, candid conversations, and amazing humans to feature.